Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. What does it mean to be white? Have you given it thought? What if the definition of white is everything that it's not? Can't you see? All this history is killing me. Whoa, we can be something greater than paper and potatoes. It's a gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying. Whoa, 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 whoa. Thank you for joining me for another Gasps, Books from a Dying Art Form. Before we get into the book, Wages of Whiteness by David Rodiger, a brief-ish preface. In the year 2016, I was a member of the tap dance ensemble for the Chicago Human Rhythm Project, working under visiting guest director Daniel Borek from Switzerland. At first, I wasn't a fan of Danny B, for the single reason that my ex-girlfriend thought he was super cute when he appeared as a guest artist years earlier at the Rhythm World Festival. Petty, I know. But that changed after five minutes of talking with him because Borak is genuinely one of the nicest, most honest people I've ever met. And now I am a tremendous fan. Over the three years that he served as director pro tempore, I got to know Danny pretty well, and his integrity makes him even more endearing. When you ask him an honest question, you can expect an honest answer. When asked what was most striking about U.S. society compared to Switzerland, he answered that, Wow, you know, it is so strange to me how everything here is about race. Like, literally everything. From tap dance to how we view tap dance history, to which former generations of tap dancers we like, to what type of costumes we wear and the types of music we prefer, often these decisions are decided in part in the U.S. and, you know, other places, of course, but, uh, but definitely here, on our views of race. Of course, everyone nodded their head in agreement when, he, when Danny said that. I mean, this was not news to us. Heck, I'm certainly not immune from this, as most everything I talk about on the show has some element of race involved. There's a good reason for this. The 200 years of black enslavement, Jim Crow, then colorblindness. I mean, like the food we eat and how much exercise a human body partakes in has had long-lasting effects whose tendrils still snake through our society today. Continuing the food metaphor, it's like a... Like, like how what you eat and how you exercise today don't bring immediate results, but have long-lasting results over time. This is how I and a lot of people who study racism and slavery view the issue, that many of the economic and social disparities are lingering symptoms of the long history of imperialism and colonialism. However, there are detractors to this theory like American economist, author, and social commentator Thomas Sowell, who downplays the effects of U.S. slavery by citing how the U.S. is not the only place that had slavery. In an interview with Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institute, Sowell had this to say. 
Slavery has been a universal institution for thousands of years, as far back as you can trace human history. And what we're looking at is if slavery is something that happened to one race of people in one country, when in fact the, the, the spread of it was around the world. In, in 1776, which is when Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nation, as mm -hmm. well as when the United States got started, he said that Western Europe is the only place in the world where there is no slavery. Uh, and even in the Western, even the Western Europeans had vast numbers of slaves in the Western in, Hemisphere, yes. but not in Western Europe itself. And so if you're going to have reparations for slavery, it's going to be the greatest transfer of wealth back and forth uh, and, between, and, 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 and cross hauling, as they say in, in the railroads, because the, the number of, of whites, for example, who were enslaved in uh, North Africa by the Barbary pirates exceeded the number of Africans enslaved in the United States and in the American colonies before that put together. I know, but nobody is going to North Africa to ask for reparations because nobody is going to be fool enough to give it to them. Uh, here we have, we have intellectuals who can, who can imagine a different history from the rest of the world, even though it's so similar to the rest of the world. Sowell's views on race and slavery are now parroted by a number of slavery apologetics, like Thomas Sowell Jr. Um, sorry, I mean uh, Candace Owens, who is a professional um, talker in a video titled A Short History of Slavery. And now for a brief history of slavery. Here's the first thing you need to know. Slavery was not invented by white people. It did not start in 1619 when the first slaves came to Jamestown. It existed before then. It did not start in 1492 when Columbus discovered the New World. In fact, when the intrepid explorer landed in the Bahamas, the native Taino tribe hoped that he would help them defeat their aggressive neighbors, the Caribs. The Caribs enslaved the Taino and, on occasion, served them for dinner. Slavery existed in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. The word slave actually comes from the Slavs of Eastern Europe. Millions of them, all white by the way, were captured and enslaved by Muslims in the 9th century and later by the Ottoman Turks. Slavery existed when the Roman Empire controlled the Mediterranean and most of Europe from the 1st through the 5th centuries. Slavery existed when Alexander the Great conquered Persia in the 4th century BC. It was so common that Aristotle simply considered it natural. The slave master model was just how the world operated in the great philosopher's day. Slavery existed during the time of the ancient Egyptians 5,000 years ago. As far back as we can go in human history, we find slavery. As renowned historian John Steele Gordon notes from Time Immemorial, slaves were a major item of commerce. As much as a third of the population of the ancient world was enslaved. Here's the second thing you need to know. Now, am I saying that this makes white people better than anyone else? Of course not. My purpose here is to simply tell the truth, and the truth is that human history is complicated. No one, regardless of skin color, stands guiltless. 
Yet today, we are never told to consider the murderous Persian Empire or the cannibalism of indigenous tribes of North and South America or the heinous actions under the imperialistic Muslim, Chinese, Mongol, or Japanese empires, to name just a few. Instead, we're told that slavery is a white phenomenon. Both Owens and Sowell make the point that slavery was not done only by white people in the U.S. and Europe, but by people all over the world and for much of human history, and conclude that our focus on slavery as a cause of disparities based on race in the U.S. is to be missing the larger point. Has slavery existed all over the world and for much of human history? Yes. Even the Bible talks about slavery, so... Duh, it's, it's not only a European U.S. invention. But let me ask you this. So what? So what if there was slavery all over the world? What does that have to do with the problems we have here? The problem is that this is a complete non sequitur that offers reasons or conclusions that have no logical connection to the argument at hand. So Northern Africans, Levantines, and Persians enslaved whitish Europeans around the Mediterranean or, or wherever, hundreds or thousands of years ago. What does that have to do with what happened here? Well, nothing. That's what. Sowell and Owens make the same point, that white people shouldn't feel so bad about slavery and the racism that it created and then the long-lasting problems because they didn't create it. You weren't there. Don't worry about it. This reminds me of a conversation I had with a tap dance friend of mine the other day. I was like, hey, dude, I'm, I'm sorry I messed up in your dance. I was supposed to do a, a shiggy bop, and I did a shovel instead. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. It's not like you invented slavery or anything. Or uh, another time when I stepped on their toe, and they were like, that hurt, bro. And I replied, sure, but no one in my family owned a plantation, so what's the problem? Or when I was late to a rehearsal and sent a text saying, I'm, I'm sorry I'm late, but the Persians had slaves too. <laughs> okay, enough of that. These are ridiculous, but so is the argument that slavery over there negates slavery over here. Yet we sensitive members of the Light Beige Brigade feel bad to think about our, you know, past white people enslaving black people. Because it's terrible. All right, we feel bad, uh, and my evidence is the comment sections on any video or article on race, racism, slavery, Jim Crow, blackface minstrelsy, reparations, the fourth Ghostbuster movie. I mean, anything to do <laughs> with, like, race at all and history. I'm not saying that white people are equally affected than non-white people who have experienced historical and or modern oppression in the U.S., but we are affected which influences the choices we make, whether we realize it or not. That's why it's called systemic. Here's something to think about, my uh, fellow cloud-colored people. Since race is technically a socially created construct, what if it was that very guilt over the behaviors of white people in the past that makes up the definition of what whiteness is today? This is the issue covered in this Book from a Dying Art Form episode, presented in part by the Illinois Arts Council and Jane Goldberg and the Changing Times Tap Dance Initiative, titled Wages of Whiteness by David Rodiger, a post-Marxist race and labor historian whose widely influential work 
focuses on working class white people of the 19th century and the effect that living in a racially segregated society had on them and us. Now, if you're freaking out about the Marxist part, don't be. Because all it means is that Rodiger is drawing from working class and labor histories and not those of aristocrats and oligarchs, and that he grounds his analysis in a more materialist and economic lens. You know, someone is a good Marxist writer when they complain about Marx's philosophies in their own work, as Rodiger does when he writes, quote, In my view, no answer to the white problem can ignore the explanatory power of historical materialism. But neither does Marxism, as presently theorized, consistently help us focus on the central issue of why so many workers define themselves as white, end quote. And also that, quote, a second problem with traditional Marxist analysis of race is that, while trying to show the class dimension of racism, they have tended to concentrate on the ruling class's role in perpetuating racial oppression and to cast white workers as dupes, even if virtuous ones, end quote. Which is what I kind of did in the Gasps episode 14 that focuses on the book Five Points by Tyler Anbinder regarding Democrat politicians tricking Irish immigrants into thinking that Republicans of the time were trying to replace them with free black workers in order to corral their votes. To Rodiger, I'm a failed Marxist. Say it with me now, bad comrade. Bad comrade, I deserve a hand slap for that. Out! That hurt, I hit my wedding ring. For more on why Marxism is not the boogeyman that people and presidential candidates say that it is, please check out Gasp's episode 13 titled Paulo Freire and the Pedagogy of the Oppressed Tap Dancer. Around the 21 minute 40 second mark, I talk about this. Now that I've scared most of the listeners away, let's learn a little bit about David Rodiger. From Rodiger's website, quote, David Rodiger teaches history and African-American studies at the University of Kansas. He was born in southern Illinois and educated in public schools in that state, with a Bachelor of Science in Education from Northern Illinois University, and completed a doctorate in history at Northwestern University in 1979. Rodiger has taught labor and southern history at Northwestern University of Missouri, University of Minnesota, and University of Illinois. He has also worked as an editor of the Frederick Douglass Papers at Yale University, end quote. Books by Rodiger include Our Own Time, from 89, The Wages of Whiteness in 91, Towards the Abolition of Whiteness in 1994, Colored White, 2003, and Working Towards Whiteness in 2005, and How Race Survived U.S. History in 2010. Yeah, Rodiger writes a lot about white people. That much is clear. What makes Wages of Whiteness pertinent to Tap Dance are his chapters on blackface minstrelsy, where Tap Dance got a lot of the character that makes it recognizable as Tap Dance today. These chapters are important because rarely, if ever, before this book, has there been an analysis of how the creation of blackface stereotypes through language, music, and dance not only shaped black and other racial stereotypes still present today, but also how it helped to cement white stereotypes that were created in opposition to black ones. Before we get to the meat, or for my vegan lessers, the, I don't know, the, the, the textured vegetable protein of the episode, sauteed tempeh, that's better. Anyways, let, let's first look at the antecedent part of the book to give us some context. 
The point of Wages of Whiteness is summed up tidily in the first chapter. Quote, In its broadest strokes, writes Rodiger, this book argues that whiteness was a way in which white workers responded to a fear of dependency on wage labor and to the necessities of capitalist work discipline, end quote. Rodiger attempts to explain the origins of whiteness as coming from working-class workers of European origin to gain and maintain a class status above enslaved and free poor black people. According to Rodiger, evidence that it was against black people and not other oppressed minorities, like indigenous Americans, is the language used by poor white people dependent on a wage income, who use slang as we do today, like wage slavery or slaving away, and several others, noting the fact that no one ever uses terms like wage Native American or wage indentured servanting away, but always allusions to slavery. Rodiger begins with a short autobiographical section regarding his time growing up in Cairo, Illinois in the early 1950s and 60s, and how he and other children bought into racist stereotypes even though they had no idea what they meant, using popular phrases like the original lyrics to Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe, look it up or, or don't, and shorthand slang that uses a particular derogatory slur towards black people. After spending time in the local black community and doing his own research, Rodiger came to the conclusion that that was all a pile of flap and was inspired to analyze how he and his classmates had been affected by this type of propaganda, writing that, quote, until very recently, I would have skipped all this autobiographical material. Sure that my ideas on race and the white working class grew out of conscious reflection based on historical research. But much of that reflection led me to what my early years might have taught me, the role of race in defining how white workers look not only at blacks, but at themselves. The pervasiveness of race, the complex mixture of hate, sadness, and longing in the racist thought of white workers' relationships between race and ethnicity. Rodiger then draws lines between race and class by using another post-Marxist writer, W.E.B. Du Bois, in particular his book Black Reconstruction from 1935, fantastic book, as a benchmark to show how the heritage of slavery and racism led the working class to prize whiteness over other socially constructed descriptors. Rodiger discusses the prehistory of the white worker, drawing a clear line between the 19th century in the U.S. and the 17th and 18th centuries, when, although racial tensions were always high, that it was rare for white people before the 19th century to use white skin color to signify working class people as a group. Sure, people made racial distinctions between red and white between European descendants and Native Americans, but there was no competition between the two in the workplace, which is why you get terms like wage slave and not wage, you know, Native American. There were references to slavery all over the place, with politicians using the word slave to attack how the British ruled the colonies, but somehow missed the connection of the word to black enslavement, an absurdity that did not go unnoticed by more enlightened individuals like founding father, political activist, philosopher, political theorist, Thomas Paine, who in 1775 wrote in the Pennsylvania Magazine how Americans could, quote, complain so loudly of attempts to enslave them while they hold hundreds of thousands in slavery and annually enslave 
many thousands more, end quote. There were white indentured servants who were treated similar to slaves, but between 1763 and 1830, the practice went into sharp decline. This is about the time, according to Rodiger, that the cultural explanation of why black people were okay to be enslaved and white people were not came about. Because even if you are free, you could still be poor. So an innate sense of racial superiority was conceived to give white working class people a psychological means of putting themselves above the status of poor black people. Rodiger writes about, quote, how easily historical and environmental explanations for black oppression could be conflated with racial ones. It shows how blacks, free and slave, could be stigmatized precisely because slavery thrived in Republican America. Indeed, that they could be stigmatized as the antithesis of Republican citizens. In the changed circumstances of the 19th century, they would further be seen as the opposites of free white labor, end quote. Note, Republican in that passage refers to a system of government held by the people where they elect an aristocratic class, like we do now, to do most of the decision-making, and not a specific political party, because the capital R Republican Party didn't exist in the 17th, 18th, and early 19th centuries. These semantic moves of comparing themselves to the enslaved were used to help poor white people maintain a sense of dignity. Quote, The existence of slavery, writes Rodiger, gave working Americans both a wretched tombstone against which to measure their fears of unfreedom and a friendly reminder that they were by comparison not so badly off, end quote. We still call a tough employer a slave driver today, and this is the time period that came from. In the 19th century, the trend of using slavery as a metaphor emerged to bolster white working class sentiments. This rhetoric emerged in several ways, and Rodiger writes that, quote, it should be obvious that for all but a handful of committed abolitionists slash labor reformers, use of a term like white slavery was not an act of solidarity with the slave, but rather a call to arms to end the inappropriate oppression of whites. Critiques of white slavery took form, after all, alongside race riots, racially exclusive trade unions, continuing use of terms like boss and help to deny comparison with slaves. More on that later. The rise of minstrel shows and popular campaigns to attack further the meager civil rights of free blacks. End quote. According to Rodiger and many other books I've read, there was a dip in racist sentiments during the beginning of the 1800s. And that's nice. Until they reared back in force just before, during, and after the Civil War. That brings us to the stuff most pertinent to this podcast. Talking about blackface minstrelsy, Rodiger argues that the idea of whiteness was in part concocted by white working class folk to separate and distinguish them from non-white people giving them a permanent higher position in the social hierarchy of the United States and abroad. Rodiger does this by combining the insights of two other historians. The first is George Rawick, who argues that white people bestowed blackness on other people because the enslaved reminded them too much of how they themselves used to be before industrial capitalism, saying that, quote, 
The racist, like the reformed sinner, creates a pornography of his former life. In order to ensure that he will not slip back into the old ways, he must see a tremendous difference between his reformed self and those whom he formerly resembled, end quote. On the other side of the coin is historian Herbert Gutman, who writes about white people bestowing whiteness on themselves to connect with the new industrial morality of capitalism, like eliminating holidays, less contact with nature, postponing gratification, and separating work from home and social life in order to make larger profits. Gutman writes that, quote, much of the new discipline was also internalized, both by those who used punctuality, regularity, and habits of sacrifice to further labor organization, and by those who saw the same values as necessary to accumulate wealth and move out of the ranks of wage labor, end quote. By combining Rowick's theory of projecting onto black people a past identity and Gutman's theory of projecting onto white people a new identity, Rodiger comes up with his own theory of how, quote, the growing popular sense of whiteness represented a hesitantly emerging consensus holding together a very diverse white working class and that part of that consensus derived from the idea that blackness could be made permanently to embody the pre-industrial past that they scorned and missed, end quote. This psychological separation then led to attacks on black people's civil rights, physical attacks by large white mobs, color bars in employment, racist language formation, and the huge popularity of blackface minstrel shows. Take language, for example. The minstrel show is where we get a still popular racial pejorative named after the early minstrel character, Zip Coon. Before minstrelsy, to call someone raccoon-like was like a compliment, meaning you were sly, crafty, quick-witted. But after Zip Coon, the city slicker dandy blackface character, it came to mean an irrepressible, irresponsible, and dandified free black person in the North, which today means something closer to a black person being a sellout to the man. Another word, buck, also went from meaning a strong, strapping man to a pejorative of brutish black men. I always wondered why Ford L. Washington, or Buck from Buck and Bubbles, would choose that name to perform under, and if it was really to his liking, or did he use it to appease white audiences while playing janitors in motion pictures? I don't know, a research topic for another day. Someone get me Rusty Frank's phone number. This is also the time when people started placing the most famous of racial pejoratives towards black people, you know the one, as a prefix to other words to mean very much of that thing. Like with, um, I'm going to use blank for the word, like blank drunk, blank poor, or blank lazy, or in some cases to imply the opposite, like with the word blank rich. In the 19th century, before the Civil War, there were opportunities for people of all different hues to celebrate and partake in black culture, art, food, music, and dance. During big festivals like Negro Election Day in Boston and the Pinkster Festival in the states of New Jersey and New York, but capitalist captains of industry and politicians didn't like white people mixing with black people because, according to Wages of Whiteness, it was due 
to that sense of capitalist racial moralism that we just talked about, that white people didn't have time for such frivolities when there was work to be done and profit to be made. Rodiger notes the coincidence that, quote, blackface literally stepped in as a popular entertainment craze at the very moment that genuinely black performers and celebrations were driven out, end quote. Here's the weirdest part about blackface minstrelsy. White people claiming to have a severe distaste for black people sure did love dressing and acting like them and enjoyed watching others do the same. The argument for this is what we mentioned earlier, that white people were projecting an earlier version of themselves into blackface performance and that it was a cathartic experience for them against the crushing social pressure of industrial capitalism. White people donned blackface not just on the proscenium stage in music hall pubs, but as costumes during parades and festivals that black people were not allowed to attend, of course, or during labor protests in New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. For jobs that black people were excluded from having, of course. Or as disguises for members of roving gangs who caused anti-establishment riots where they attacked police officers and black people, including those attending church services. In short, by blacking up, white people got to act black, which is a euphemism for just doing whatever they want without losing social standing. Oh, it, uh, it, it wasn't me that did those things. It was uh, black me. Yeah, that's the ticket. You could beat Simone Biles at the Olympics with that level of mental gymnastics. Holy moly. Blackface thus served to connect the wearer to pre-industrial permissiveness, but under a guise that both hid their whiteness and affirmed it. Quote, in re-emphasizing that the Christmas night or the militia day was a time of celebration and license, of looseness, drinking, and promiscuity, writes Rodiger, but even in the midst of revelry and even given the real desires of the crowds to act black, the celebrants needed to underscore continually the point that they were still white, end quote. This was especially true for Irish working-class people who were constantly compared to black people, but more on that later. Besides the audience being mainly northern urban working-class white people, although rich people and several presidents enjoyed blackface shows too, the minstrel arts were also working-class. Thomas Jim Crow Rice, apprenticed as a woodworker, and Dan Emmett, composer of Dixie, apprenticed as a printer. Quote, Blackface minstrels were the first self-consciously white entertainers in the world, writes Rodiger. The importance of a common whiteness under the blackface gave the minstrel stage the ability to foster astonishing ethnic diversity even during periods of anti-immigrant hysteria. Rodiger gives an example of a minstrel limerick, which goes, quote, There is not a man in the whole minstrel band who would ever go back on a friend, though dark be his face, yet the black can't efface the kind deeds which through life him attend, end quote. Like how some drag performers put uncomfortable audience members at ease by revealing that they are actually male, like by dropping the tone of their voice at a comedic moment, so too did the minstrel performer drop hints that they weren't actually black, 
so the audience can feel more secure that they're not actually enjoying black entertainment, further uniting them in their whiteness. Here is how blackface created a unified white identity. Although the working class, white people all had very different ethnicities and cultures, when viewing a caricature of black people, they could at least all agree that they weren't that. Quote, this extreme cultural pluralism was at the same time a liquidation of ethnic and regional cultures into blackface, writes Rodiger, and ultimately into a largely empty whiteness, end quote. Now that's pretty heavy stuff, if you ask me. Like, for real, my fellow pales, ask yourself, what does it mean to be white? Not just the benefits we receive, but what is it? The answer in Wages of Whiteness posits that there is no white culture, unless you count the opposite of what is not white. Think about that. That's some, some psychology right there. What does it mean to be black? Well, anything that is black culture. What's Hispanic? Anything that is Hispanic culture. What's white? The opposite of whatever goes on in those other cultures. You get the idea. Not just any whiteness, but masculine whiteness was defined by the blackface minstrel show. Often, the theaters were segregated not only by race, but by gender, with men in the good seats and women in the cheap seats, or not allowed in at all, and the stage content reflects this separation. Rodiger writes that, quote, Minstrelsy contained its full share of sexual puns, including homoerotic ones. It included very considerable transvestism, with troops being universally all-male and with early minstrel stars gaining fame for looking the wench, end quote. They even had transgender jokes, like this one supplied by Rodiger. One performer asks, if a woman changes her sex, what religion would she be? To which the end man performer replies, a heathen. The next time someone rants about the sudden emergence of drag shows and transgender people, you can confidently roll your eyes because, yeah, Western drag has existed for hundreds of years, among some cultures much longer, and were also given a hard time then. Uh, there's plenty of documentation, uh, but maybe most people don't know about this because they, that's right, didn't read a book. Seriously, you guys, read a book. If, if, if after release of every gas episode you choose to ignore it, and read a historically accurate book instead, I wouldn't be mad at that. There is even a case that blackface minstrelsy defined heterosexual white masculinity, in that the dandy zip coon could be tough, but also prim and effeminate. Again, if what was on stage was a definition of what the members of the audience were not, then the sexually tamed dandy of antebellum minstrelsy and the sexually charged shows of postbellum minstrelsy reflected white men's Protestant and Catholic-based sexual repression. Quote, The desires animating the minstrel stage, writes Rodiger, however much they were originally more playfully erotic than nakedly pornographic, could find full expression only beneath a racial guise. Rodiger writes that, quote, The desires animating the minstrel stage, however much they were originally more playfully erotic than nakedly pornographic, could find full expression only beneath a racial disguise, end quote. Here's where we get into a Marxist interpretation of blackface, with a focus on class 
over social factors. Historians like Sean Wilentz, David Grimstead, and William F. Stowe argue that blackface subverted both phenotypical race and class, emphasizing class consciousness over racial consciousness, because racism at the time was taken for granted. Wilentz writes in the book Chance Democratic that minstrelsy used anti-black caricatures as a tool for subtle class criticism, describing the turn, quote, from racist humor to mocking the arrogance, imitativeness, and dimwittedness of the upper class in permissible ways, end quote. Grimstead and Stowe, in their 1975 essay, White-Black Humor, in the Journal of Ethnic History, that the black mask helped allow, quote, deep expressions of emotions of loss and longing, as well as ridicule of social and intellectual platitudes and the discrepancies between American dreams and American realities among whites. End quote. Wilentz, Grimstead, and Stowe place class over racism, but Rodiger is not entirely convinced. He says that these other writers fail to realize that, quote, first, with very minor exceptions coming mainly in the realm of dance, white entertainers never crossed the color line on stage. Second, blackface performances tended to support pro-slavery and white supremacist politics. Certainly, some songs evoked the horrors of slavery, especially of being sold and taken away from home. But countless others paint a paternal plantation and contented slaves. What varied far less was that when political chips were down, Minstrelsy could speak directly for specific anti-black policies in a way that it could not for egalitarian ones. Minstrels ridiculed bobulation, they mean abolition, joined southernist expansionist elements in supporting the war against Mexico, argued that escaped slaves wanted to go back to slavery, and dismissed British anti-slavery appeals. The Civil War brought an outpouring of minstrelsy, most of whose political content was giving over to attacking emancipation, the use of blacks as troops, taxation to pay for Freedmen's Bureau activities, black civil rights, and alleged favoritism toward black people. Perhaps the best example of this is how, after the now grossly misunderstood text Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, a hyper-successful pro-abolition novel, minstrel shows Flip the book's meaning to pro-slavery by adding songs like Happy Are We, Darkie's So Gay, I'll Never Stop Feeling Salty for Poor Harriet Beecher Stone, who besides being robbed of receiving royalties for her work, had her characters from the novel perverted to the extent that now people won't read the book because they think that the perversion is what is actually written in it. It's not. It's a good book. Check it out. This applies to tap dance, as the term tap dancer in the Urban Dictionary, among a dozen other not-so-great interpretations, is described as, quote, a black person who does everything to appease white people, doesn't want to be black, let non-black people say the, the word with an A or an R, is also anti-black, even though they are black, end quote. That's the Urban Dictionary. I think it's like the fifth one down, something like that. Now, we come to the most depressing and bewildering part, but also the most infuriating and symbolic of U.S. politics and representative politics in general. The part of the book that analyzes how the Irish became white.
I don't know if some of you appreciate exactly how many Irish people immigrated to the United States in the 19th century. Judging by page 34 of the collected census data found in the Historical Statistics of the United States, 1789 to 1945, published in 1949, if you were to compare the migrations of any other European ethnicity to that of the Irish, it's not even close. Compared to all other countries, still no contest, with Irish amounting to almost half, approximately 43 to 47% of all immigration in the U.S. between 1820 to 1854, where it starts to taper off but is still significant. There's always been a lot of Irish around. And you know what happens when there are a lot of a kind of immigrant around? That's right, people treat them like garbage. In fact, the stereotypes attributed to poor Irish and poor free and enslaved black U.S. Americans is remarkably similar. From Wages of Whiteness, quote, Low-browed and savage, groveling and bestial, lazy and wild, simian and sensual. Such were the adjectives used by many native-born Americans to describe the Catholic Irish race in the years before the Civil War, end quote. Keeping in mind that native-born Americans at that time were just people who were born here, not who we call Native Americans today. I don't think that I have to point out the similarities between what people called the Irish then and the derogatory slurs lobbed at black people now. Writer and member of the Whig Party, George Templeton Strong, called the Irish Celtic beasts. A variety of writers and ethnologists referred to them as the Celtic race. The Paddy character, drawn by political cartoonists, was ape-like. Like the descendants of Africa living in the U.S., Irish people, too, experienced oppression and expulsion from their homelands, leaving behind family members never to be seen again. And just like the popular histories of tap dance relate, relations between Irish and black, in many cases, were amicable and sociable. Black and Irish people lived together in cities like Philadelphia, Worcester, and New York. They swapped music and dance, language and lingo, and even some things more achem, carnal, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. Orator, writer, and statesman Frederick Douglass, on a tour of Ireland during the famine of 1845-46, to 46, compared the quote-unquote wailing notes of Irish songs to the quote-unquote wild notes of the sorrowful songs during his own enslavement. Daniel O'Connell, a super-famous and celebrated abolitionist of Irish and Black American independence, sponsored an 1842 petition to convince Irish Americans to side with black Americans and vote against slavery. Starving people in Ireland truly seem to care about and share solidarity with the plight of free and enslaved black Americans. After all, Irish people were oppressed by the British, and U.S. slavery is based on British colonialism. Therefore, the Irish in Ireland were against U.S. slavery. So why didn't Irish Americans mirror their Irish Ireland brethren and sister in. Two reasons. The then Democratic Party and the Catholic Church. Catholics used to get a hard time, as they were a minority. And you know how the U.S. treats those. Well, everyone everywhere. 
But with so many Irish Catholics coming to the U.S., there were now enough to where they, as a group, could wield real power. Enter the Democrats, who courted the Catholic Church into a team-up, which in turn caused the Church to propagate anti-abolitionist and anti-black propaganda. But the regrettable behavior of the Catholic Church pales in comparison to the schemes of the Democratic Party. The waves of Irish immigrants coming over in the 1700s and early part of the 1800s were not generally as destitute as the Irish who would come to the U.S. later, less desperate and harder to sway and finagle. Also, they were new, and just like now, new immigrants don't get to vote for the president and Congress. But by the mid-1800s, there were now a lot of Irish who were citizens and could vote, and here's where the Democrats saw an opportunity. Democrats gave Irish people protection against discrimination and allowed them employment opportunities in the government. Minor ones, but still. Democrat candidate Stephen A. Douglas in the famous presidential debates against Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln included rhetoric like calling Lincoln a race mixer and said Lincoln wasn't concerned about the white man and white slavery. Douglas argued that the United States ancestors were quote-unquote, not all of English origin, but were also of Scotch, Irish, German, French, and Norman descent. In short, Douglas was on the side of, quote, every branch of the Caucasian race, end quote. That's what Douglas said. Quoting Rodiger, quote, less noticed by scholars has been the way in which an emphasis on a common whiteness smoothed over divisions in the democratic ranks, with mainly northern cities by emphasizing that immigrants from Europe, and particularly from Ireland, were white, and thus unequivocally entitled to equal rights. In areas with virtually no black voters, the Democrats created a white vote, end quote. Quote, job competition has often been considered the key to Irish-American racism, writes Rodiger, and continues to say that, moreover, to say that Irish Americans acted as militant white supremacists because of job competition only invites the further question, why did they choose to stress competition with black workers instead of with other whites, end quote. Rodiger continues, quote, by and large, free blacks were not effective competitors for jobs with the Irish. A small part of the urban labor force, negligible in most Midwestern cities, they at best held on to small niches in the economy and small shares of the population, while the immigrant population skyrocketed in the 1840s and 1850s, end quote. Yes, the no Irish need apply sentiment of many businesses hurt Irish opportunities, and yes, some people would rather hire anyone, including black people, than Irish. That is true and is a major focus of the people who argue that the Irish were treated even worse than free black people argument. But that argument misses something very crucial. According to Wages of Whiteness, what many historians and contrarians miss is the effective way that Irish workers could elbow out black workers in ways that they couldn't do to their white competitors. On ethnic and religious lines, other white ethnic minorities, Dutch, German, and then Protestant, kicked the Irish out of certain industries, like domestic and artisan work, and the Irish, 
being at the low end of the mid-19th century social and economic hierarchy, didn't have much support to combat these disruptions of their labor and earning capabilities. However, Irish workers could kick out black workers and no one cared as much, and they suffered less or no punishment for doing so, making black people easy targets. Rodiger says that, quote, had the Irish tried to assert a right to work because they were Irish, rather than because they were white, they would have provoked a fierce backlash from native-born artisans, end quote. Again, native-born referring to ethnic European Americans born in the country, not Native Americans, as we identify them today. These native-born blame the Irish for all the things that we blame immigrants for now, stealing their jobs, flooding the labor market, and causing the lowering of wages. Quote, by casting job competition and neighborhood rivalries as racial rather than ethnic, the Irish argued against such nativist logic, end quote. To get a better understanding of why Irish Americans came to prize whiteness, it makes more sense to look at their struggle for labor as not only between Irish and black, but between white and white. Most of the Irish immigrants in the mid-1800s made a living by doing back-breaking labor. Irish people in Ireland and in the United States suffered under intense oppression. Most of the Irish immigrants in the mid-1800s made a living by doing back-breaking labor. In Ireland, uh, they were oppressed uh, food-wise, because during the potato famine, it wasn't like there wasn't other food to eat. They were made to get rid of all the other different types of food they grew and had to live on potatoes, because that was the cheapest and healthiest thing they could grow. So there was no famine in Ireland. It was just the potatoes. And if the English would have said, well, just eat some of the other food and we won't sell it, then, you know, it, they would have been fine. But uh, the English didn't do that. They suffered religious oppression. Many were Catholics, and the church tried to clean up the Irish image by imposing fiats of temperance of alcohol and sexual promiscuity. They suffered economic oppression as they were dirt poor. There were the bigoted sentiments towards the Irish, that they were lazy, untrustworthy, you name it. Agrarian, oppressed, drinkers, promiscuous, lazy. These are the qualities placed on the black minstrel characters. The salacious, lush dandy, Zip Coon, and the sentimental, dim-witted slave, Jim Crow. This is what historian George Rawick meant by saying that, quote, the racist creates a pornography of his former life, end quote. That there is a sense of Freudian projection going on by putting qualities that you both long for and despise onto the blackface characters. Rodiger writes that, quote, the Irish immigrants addressed their own divorce from connections with land and nature's rhythms in part by attempting to define pre-industrial behavior and even longing for the past itself as black behavior. When Irish immigrant minstrel entertainers sang Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, they both expressed feelings of loss and exile and at the same time distanced themselves from those same feelings through blackface. Irish immigrants consistently argued that African American workers were lazy, improvident, and irresponsible. The immigrants were used to hearing such characterization applied to themselves and not only by political enemies, but also by their own newspapers, which fretted over the need to develop a work ethic among the newly arrived, end quote. During and after the Civil War, 
In some areas, race relations gradually got better. Some labor strikes became integrated. Northern soldiers begrudgingly accepted black soldiers into their ranks because, hey, if it raises the chance that you don't die, then it's worth a shot. Even blackface minstrels became, in some cases and ostensibly, more progressive. With lines like this uh, coming from a minstrel show, quote, We own the hoe, we own the plow, we own the hands that hold. We sell the pig, we sell the cow, but never child be sold. End quote. But emancipation of enslaved black people also instigated a further entrenchment into whiteness by poor, ethnically European folk since there was now an even less solid legal barricade between white and black. Rodiger writes that, quote, if northern white workers developed new attitudes towards people of color only slowly and contradictorily, emancipation made for much more consistent and dramatic changes in how such workers conceived of themselves. No longer could whiteness be an unambiguous source of self-satisfaction. No longer could a counterpoint with slaves define whites as free labor. No longer could the supposedly servile, lazy, natural, and sensual African-American serve as so clear a counterpoint to white labor and as so convenient a repository for values that white workers longed for and despised, end quote. Post-Civil War is when the blackface stereotypes changed dramatically from the happy, docile slave to the salacious, grifter archetype. The male characters became greedier and more aggressive. The female characters became more debaucherous and of looser morals. All these can be viewed as a reaction to emancipation that further cemented black stereotypes in opposition to a sense of whiteness. There you have it. While blackface minstrelsy wasn't the only thing that created the concept of being racially white, it's a big part of its origin. There are opponents to Rodiger's view, including fellow post-Marxist historian Eric Lott in his book, Love and Theft, which argues against a psychology purely driven by labor and instead posits an even more psychologically inclined motto, that white men had a subconscious homosexual affinity for other black men and black culture. We'll discuss Lott in a future episode. Interesting book. But many historians agree that Rodiger is on to something, and the well-researched wages of whiteness poses a compelling argument for the origins of what constitute being white. If you remember, Rodiger mentions that most minstrel performers didn't break the color bar, that a lot of their imitation of black people came a priori from their own imaginations and a posteriori from stereotypes propagated by word of mouth, politicians, rich capitalists, and the media. In all fields except for dance, it turns out. The music, rhythms, movements, and techniques of black dance was the one thing an imitator couldn't just fabricate, because learning good dancing is hard, and the times of communion between black and white people occurred when there was music and dancing, like at the black festivals in the north. And that's kind of cool, because it, you know, you can think that there is a little more, even though it's being you know, redone by white people, there is this sense that you had to practice the dance and study the dance and, and, and learn it from someone because it'd be so obvious you were just, you know, messing around. Like, people, some people knew. So again, uh, dance, 
tap dance being a unifier of sorts. A point I've made before, it's hard for a lot of people to accept the prominent white role in the formation of tap dance, that there is a tremendous amount of white influence. On the other hand, it's equally difficult, it seems, for other people to accept that uh, the white influence came at the cost of the relationship between white and black people, and that tap dance was less a collaboration but an appropriation of black dance, speech, and music, with their ethnic dance styles thrown in due to their limited experience being around real black people. Undeniable is the way that dance, particularly tap dance, can bring people together, despite their bigoted proclivities, and that's something we can be proud of. Today, as in the late 1800s, more exposure to the people and products of other cultures breaks down the barriers that divide us, and anyone that tells you that more exposure to positive representations of black, Hispanic, Asian, South Asian, Middle Eastern, LGBTQIA, and working class culture in the media is bad are just mirroring the sentiments of bigots of the past. I end with a message to my fellow paper imitators. There is no white culture. Or more succinctly, white culture is simply anything that isn't white. Once you realize this, based on well-documented facts, the whole concept of race becomes grotesque, and deconstructing your own whiteness becomes much more palatable. Only then can we do like white and black people in the late 18th century, putting aside our differences and uniting in a common goal. To fight against the Chinese who are coming over to take our jobs. Wait a minute. They... Oh, shoot. That is what happened. So, uh, yay, solidarity. But that's just a wait. Epilogue. Is this an anti-white people episode? No, I am white people. And I don't hate myself or any other white person. Well, for being white. Do I want to bash the Irish? No, my wife and her family are Irish, and they're great. But I do think that it is important for us sun-fearing folk to not be squeamish when we talk about race, its construction and its deconstruction. There's nothing wrong with learning about this stuff. And once you do, it becomes glaringly obvious about the intentions of people who don't want you to learn about it. So don't get too mad at me. But I will take a controversial stance and ask people to take a softer approach towards, you know, uh, white people who seem confused about race and history. Something that I personally struggle with. Just ask my therapist. Every time a white person says, well, the Irish were slaves too, take a second to realize the level of misinformation that got them there. What I call the Cuban Missile Crisis of Critical Thinking. Irish people were lied to in the 19th century. So some people wrote books and gave speeches revealing those lies. Other people then respond with their own books calling the exposers liars, to which the former respond by calling the liars liars about them lying about them lying. And, well, you get the idea, right? Like the Cuban Missile is one missile, and then there's an anti-missile, and then there's an anti-missile missile, and there's an anti-anti-missile missile missile. There's as many books of misinformation as there are of information, or at least it seems. And it's seriously messed up a lot of people of all pigmentation, whose main crime is believing people who tell them that they have their best interests at heart during times of strife and suffering. Does this excuse white people from being racist? No, of course not. 
but perhaps we can move closer to Dr. Martin Luther King's vision of justice combined with love when we realize that racism in white folk is the product of hundreds of years of being lied to by the people that are supposed to help them in their time of greatest need. Feeling empathy towards racists sounds like a heavy task. Boy, oh boy, do I struggle with this because nothing, and I mean nothing, feels better than screaming at a racist while at least pounding really hard on your computer keys. But I agree with Dr. King that justice and love go hand in hand. These misguided white and some non-white, well, there's actually a whole bunch of non-white people I would say this about too, these individuals fear racial justice. And they should, if it is not combined with love, that is. If progressive folk were to suddenly gain all the power, what's going to happen to them? Without love, all the racists are going to get punched in the face, like the white nationalist Richard Spencer during an interview, a video that is beyond viral. Without a clear message of love, I believe that people confused about race should be fearful. Because who wants to get punched in the face? Unless they are being physically threatened, the initial face puncher is the bad guy, even though their intentions are well-meaning. Quote, Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love, end quote, writes Dr. King in 1968. We are seeing now and throughout history what people do with power sans love. And if we wish justice to ever be achieved, we can't make that same mistake. Even though feeling empathy towards racists is extremely uncomfortable and face-punching is oh so satisfying. The next time someone says, well, but the Irish, they were slaves too. Take a second to realize how they've been buried under a monumental weight of deception and see if that doesn't alter your strategy towards changing their misguided mind. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Support for this episode comes from the Illinois Arts Council and Jane Goldberg's Changing Times Tap Dance Initiative grants as part of a larger work that actually involves real-life tap dancing. Eventually, I'll do it, you'll see. There's also a tip jar linked in the description where you can leave me a tip if you like. Finally, thank you to the GASP's Patreon supporters, Lori Williams and Junior Lanian. The few, the proud, love you guys, and thank you oh so very much. And now it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Pew, 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 pew. It's Space Cowboys this time. There's laser, laser pistols. episode 114 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, hosted by Tap Dance Podfather, Travis Knights. We get an interview with one of my favorite people, Lisa Latouche, from September of 2022, 
after she received a Dora Maver Moore Award from the Toronto Alliance of Performing Arts. Latouche talks about how tough it is to balance motherhood, especially balancing a checkbook when childcare is so expensive, with work, and also about some of her projects and performances, including some anecdotes about being in the Broadway production of Shuffle Along. Knights and Latouche get into a very interesting conversation about an adjacent show on Broadway, Hamilton. Maybe you've heard of it. And talk about how it's it's kind of weird to have a show where black and brown people play slaveholders. On one hand, we're making history come alive. On the other, we're ignoring other parts of history that add vital context. It's a great conversation held on what sounds like a street corner which Knights profusely apologizes for, but I think gives it uh, the effect of pulling you into the conversation, because you can picture where they're at by the sounds that you hear, like you're standing on the street corner with them. So check it out. On the April 7th, 2022 episode of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hilary Marie reads some inspiring quotes from Miles Davis, and each one's a gem. In improvisation, there are no mistakes, is one. I'll play it first, and tell you what it is later, is another. Ooh, here's a good one. I always listen to what I can leave out. Ooh, so smooth. Episode is only three minutes long, but you can ponder each aphorism for hours. And I intentionally left out what I think are the best ones. So give this episode of Lost in the Shuffles a listen. Check it out. On episode 52 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin catches us up on the tap happenings in Minneapolis circa December 2021 before diving into a very interesting conversation with tap dancer, percussionist, and world musician Max Pollock. They talk about tap floors, leave only one space open along the edge for optimal microphone utility and about the pros and cons of skin on skin. It's not what it sounds like, trust me. This deep dive into the history behind the various sources of South American and Cuban rhythm and claves is fascinating. And this one is like a highly informative crash course lecture. So do yourself and your brain a favor and check it out. On episode number three of the Real Talk Tap Talks presented by Shuffle Live Productions, host Nico Rubio talks about his experience at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic. A blast from the past, which was like three years ago, but feels like 15. Rubio talks about some unfortunate cancellations, concerns for his and others' livelihoods, and by the end, well, it essentially becomes an advertisement for his services. Sure, it becomes an ad, but why not? There is a genuine sense of foreboding in Rubio's voice. A sense of, oh, flap. How am I going to buy important things like, you know, food and stuff if I'm not working? Desperate times call for desperate measures, and I'm pretty sure that Rubio is still trucking along and doing great things. So don't despair and dig this time capsule of an episode. Check it out. On Season 2, Episode 4 of the Either And Podcast, host Brill Barrett interviews me about the origins of the academic discipline known as critical race theory. I don't know why I'm saying it like that. Of critical race theory. 
and the made-up propaganda surrounding it. Learn about who started it, what it's made of, and the person who caused all the fake outrage around it in the first place. And you can hear how I actually talk when I don't read entirely from a script and edit out all the you knows and uhs. You don't have to agree with everything that CRT scholars have written about, but it is not the boogeyman that it has been made out to be. And you can find answers to common misconceptions in this episode of the Either And podcast. So check us out. All right, that's everything. Thanks a lot, guys. Tapman. All right, I think we've lost them. Welcome to the bonus section where, like a good millennial, I reference now antiquated things like hidden tracks on cassette tapes and compact discs. Millennials, giving you constant reminders of things that no longer matter. It's conspiracy theory time. Who doesn't like a good conspiracy theory? Most of us love them, and they're a small price to pay for the crumbling of democracy and blah, blah, you you know... What's going on? In the 1860s, the Democrats attacked the Republicans by claiming that they had a secret scheme to promote sexual relations between white and black people. 
to mongrelize the white race, and the term miscegenation became a popular pejorative to throw around during the 1864 presidential campaign. The term miscegenation was coined by Irish immigrant and Democrat D.G. Crowley and co-author George Wakeman in their 1863 pamphlet Miscegenation, the Theory of the Blending of the Races, applied to the American white man and Negro. Crowley and Wakeman combined the Latin words misere, or to mix, and genus, or race, in a neologism, a newly coined term or expression designed to replace the older term for race mixing, amalgamation. From Wages of Whiteness, quote, Crowley and Wakeman did not claim credit for this linguistic creativity. They instead anonymously wrote the pamphlet as an elaborate hoax, posing as pro-Republican abolitionists who saw mixing of the races as a quote-unquote rich blending of blood. Crowley then sent copies to prominent anti-slavery leaders. He hoped to secure their endorsements for theories that could then be used to embarrass the Republicans in the coming elections, end quote. The specific relationship between black and Irish people formed the core of the hoax, which argued that the brutal race of Irish people would benefit from mating and producing offspring with a superior race, namely black people. Quote, miscegenation succeeded briefly as a political dirty trick designed to produce a backlash among Irish and other white workers, writes Rodiger. His effectiveness rested on Crowley and Wakeman's understanding that their audience was not only ready to believe in Republican plots, but was also fascinated by the prospects of black Irish sexuality, end quote. There you go, a real-life conspiracy theory that totally worked. And by worked, I mean helped set back race relations for more than 100 years. This theory of miscegenation due to integration persisted. And here are some quotes from the book Turn Away Thy Son by Elizabeth Jockaway about the desegregation crisis in Little Rock, Arkansas in the 1950s. Jockaway writes that, quote, Arkansas's most vociferous segregationist leader in the fall of 1957, Jim Johnson, told a United Press reporter his fellows feared integration primarily because it would lead eventually to a mixing of the white and Negro races, end quote. In the words of the United Press reporter, quote, In the end, this is what it gets down to. Segregation leaders give a dozen reasons for not wanting Negroes in white schools. They don't often mention miscegenation, but, as one prominent leader believes, over the long haul, that is what it will lead to, end quote. Jackaway also writes about a broadcast from August 20, 1957, about a member of the Mother's League, an anti-integration group in Little Rock that, quote, a Canadian broadcaster soon reported of one league member. The reporter says that she was genuinely convinced that allowing Negroes into white schools would promote widespread miscegenation. And she was convinced that if the federal government persisted in forcing the integration of the schools, it would lead to bloodshed, end quote. Those are only a few of the examples from Jackaway's book, but there are many more. Most of the time, people were smart enough to not use the word themselves, but would instead use terms like, quote-unquote, racial purity, and the dangers of, quote-unquote, intermarriage. But they were just worried about white and black kids having sex with each other and producing non-white babies. Jackaway writes that, quote, the segregationists described all the school officials, and especially the superintendent, 
as race mixers and advocates of communism. <laughs> and they kept harping, without much imagination, on the theme of miscegenation, end quote. Fears about race mixing formed the very heart of their community's rejection of the school board's plans towards integration, and that this was the main fear leading to Southern resistance to desegregation. Notice how one of the arguments against people of, of different races being allowed to sit in the same room together is communism. If you've listened to this podcast enough, then you know that people who argue that communism is the cause of everything they don't like are usually full of BS chorus. Although if you want to blame Karl Marx for being anti-slavery and against racism, well, I suppose that is true. As in this quote from Das Kapital, where Marx writes, quote, In the United States of North America, every independent movement of the workers was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured a part of the republic. Labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin wherein the black it is branded. But out of the death of slavery, a new life at once arose, end quote. So, in a way, yes, these pro-segregationists were not full of BS chorus because the Marxists would be fine with black and white kids hanging out together. You got them! Race mixing is absolutely a communist plot to destroy the institutions of systemic racism brought about by capitalism. Score one for the racist. You could even view the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution as a Marxist doctrine. Politicians in 2023 in campaign speeches rail against the socialist plot to have the government appropriate private property for the ostensible general good. What did the 13th Amendment do? It took enslaved people, considered property at the time, away from their owners, which is technically a seizure of property. The next time you hear someone complain that the socialists are coming to take your property, you can agree with them and reference how the evil government took the then rightful property of the poor, oppressed slave owners who had to pick their own cotton to dry their salty tears. We discussed earlier how the consequent half of the word raccoon transformed due to white people distancing themselves from black people. But that's not all. They changed a whole bunch of words to mean different things. For white domestic workers, the term servant took on a dirty meaning, and they collectively decided to change the word to the help. Because they weren't serving a master, they were helping their employer. What's funny but not funny is how now the word help takes on a classist, pejorative connotation, which appeared after non-white people began joining the ranks of uh, domestic workers in the North. Now, if you call the help the help, you're being rude because it came to be associated with poor non-white people. But when it was associated with poor white people, it was a good thing. Here's another semantic shift that really is funny. White workers further distanced themselves from black slavery by ceasing to call their domestic employers the masters of the house, as only the enslaved had masters. Instead, they decided on a better-sounding word, boss, which is a Dutch word that means master. <laughs> In other words, white people replaced the word master with the word master, but in a different language so that it didn't sound the same. I mean, come on. That's funny. Anyways, that's all for now. Take it easy. 
I'll see you next time. I love you.